Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, we are very thankful to you today to be able to sing about what we know is true, that is the gospel. To be able to sing that singular line that here in the death of Christ I live. Father, that that means everything to us. Thank you for bringing us here to sing these truths. We're thankful that you have made these truths known to us. That you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed the gospel to us. Our guilt and, and sin and need of a savior and righteousness in you. You've given us the faith to not only see but believe. We thank you for all these things. No matter what happens in this world. We are people marked out by your love for us and forgiveness of our sins and salvation for eternity. And that, Lord, is only because you look upon helpless and destitute people and you love them and you save them. You call us to yourself. You meet us in the darkest place of our lives and you save us. And we praise you for that. Father, as we come now to this point of opening the scriptures, we ask for your blessing. We ask that you would engage our hearts with this text, that it wouldn't take lofty speech or lofty wisdom to engage us and and make the word compelling, that our hearts would thirst for what we look at today and be refreshed by the gospel. And that your spirit would apply your living word in a way that only you can have credit for. And only you can receive glory for. God, we don't need some man's opinion or thoughts. We need you to make the truth of yourself and your word known to us. We need you to do what only you can do. And we ask in sincerity and eagerness for that blessing today. In Jesus' name, amen. Invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open them with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. Somebody asked me last week, not in our church, but in the community, if I was still preaching through Luke, and I said yes, but I think this last Sunday we took a month off of our time because we covered so much scripture. We'll make up for that this morning. We won't cover that much. Luke, chapter 21. We really are ticking towards the end of this gospel. Today, we come to look at a familiar passage that I had the privilege to discuss with several of our pastors here this week, what they thought about it, and I think we all agree on how I'm going to teach it, at least I hope. And uh, It's a familiar text, but I think we're going to look at it in a different light this morning. Considering, in the context of all of Luke, 20 and 21, we'll be looking at the devastating effects of false religion. The devastating effects of false religion. There are a lot of things that uh, stir up righteous indignation in God, but one of the most notable things that God despises, that's seen so clearly throughout the Gospels, is false religion. And coupled with that is hypocrisy. God hates, despises, hypocritical, false religion. 
And I think he does that for two reasons, uh, primarily. One, it's an insult upon his grace. False religion is an insult upon the grace of God. Because every false religion that's out there is a religion or a belief system that's contrary to the gospel. And if it's contrary to the gospel, then it adds something to your effort of earning salvation. Because the gospel is clear, isn't it? That there's nothing in you good, nothing that you can do to earn your favor before God. You must repent of your sins, place your faith in Christ, and that is the only means and only possible way to be saved. And everything else that's contrary to that adds a list of something that must be accomplished. Whether there's a certain degree of remorse that must be attained or a certain degree of, of penance that must be uh, purchased or expressed or whatever have you, that's all false religion. And anytime you try to add works into the system or anytime you try to add works into the gospel, you are insulting the grace of God expressed through Christ on the cross. That's a major major thing to look at the crowning moment of our redemption with our Lord hanging upon the tree shedding his blood and to think and to say and to believe and to practice that that is not sufficient enough and that is not good enough strikes hard at the heart of God but God also hates false religion because the hypocrisy that it produces, and he hates hypocrisy because that is also an insult upon the sanctifying work of his spirit. When one professes faith in Christ, one must therefore be sanctified by the spirit that indwells them at the moment of profess professing faith in Christ, and that sanctification produces, as James would talk about, works or fruit that uh, is in line with your faith. And anytime hypocrisy arises, it's saying, I can act this way here and be this person there. I can be two-faced, double-minded, uh, live a double life. And that is an insult upon God's sanctifying work in our lives. So therefore, in those, just those two reasons alone, there might be several more, but just those two reasons alone, we find God despises false religion that produces hypocrisy. Because it's an insult upon the cross and an insult upon the work of the Holy Spirit. And because of that uh, sort of understanding, we find over and over and over again through the Gospels, and we've seen through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus stirred to that righteous anger, that righteous indignation over false religion. A corrupted religious system or corrupted religious leaders that God gives no place to. You know what's remarkable in the Gospels is how often Christ demonstrates super, supernatural patience and grace to some very serious sinners. Everyone from practicing prostitutes to, to thieving tax collectors Christ has immense mercy, immense grace, immense patience. You know the group that he doesn't have much patience for in the Gospels? Corrupted religious leaders who lay upon people, the people of God, legalistic burdens and claim those burdens to be issued by God when they are far from God's intention originally. And every time Jesus encounters someone like that, he gives no place for them to make a defense and no place for them to, to give any sort of justification. He will still save corrupted religious leaders. A prime example of that is Nicodemus. But even in his encounter with Nicodemus in John 3, he doesn't give Nicodemus much of a chance to speak about what he believes. 
Jesus deals with him rather forcefully. So over and over again, we find God's disdain for false religion expressed when Christ engages these false, corrupted religious leaders and he refutes them, he exposes them, and ultimately he declares they are at odds with God. That's what we've come to see in Luke's gospel, these religious practices and in Jesus' day of, of Jewish Israel, they're far from the intentions of God. They've strayed from the plan and design and desire of God. We know that the Jewish faith is grounded in, and for Jesus' time, partially grounded in uh, the Old Testament law. But by the time of Jesus, he's arguing against these religious leaders, not because he wants to dismiss the Old Testament law that he himself institutes, but because they have turned it into little more than legalistic religion, uh, re religious rituals designed to sustain those in power and, and provide little more than civil order. Things in Christ's time, as we've considered and seen in Luke's gospel, are very rarely actually about God. The religious system that Jesus is engaging with and interacting with, even here in Luke 21, is more about money and stature and authority and reputation than it is about God. So they've instituted, and we find it through Luke's gospel, we've seen it through Luke's gospel already, they've instituted things like ritual washings. Um, one commentator said paying for blessings. We've seen Sabbath restrictions and other things of those of that nature become the dominant focus of the religious leaders instead of God himself. Christ even condemns them for such behavior in Luke chapter 11, verse 37. It says this, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. A, a, a ritualistic endeavor. In verse 39, the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And he goes on to keep saying, Woe to you Pharisees, woe to you lawyers, woe to you scribes. But the main point is, you've done all of these, these legalistic things, but you've neglected justice and the love of God. False corrupted religion always becomes about rules and stuff and not the pursuit, genuine sincere pursuit of God. So warning... If your Christian faith has become about rules and not your pursuit of God, then you need to pay attention to the passage. Jesus calls them fools because he has a disdain for false religion. And what these people thought they were doing in the name of God actually incurred the disdain of God. Other places Christ would call them whitewashed tombs that's how, what he's been engaging in in Luke 20 
since verse 1, really. It really, if you back up into verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 45 and 46, he's cleansed the temple. And much of chapter 20 and 21 is based off of that act. In Luke chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, they begin to question Jesus. What gives you the right to cleanse the temple? And so he's been engaging and answering and exposing their false, corrupted belief system and their false, corrupted practices. Uh, he, he's come to this point of realizing, and we've come to this point of realizing, the staggering amount of atrocities that these so-called God-ordained religious leaders have committed. Up to just Luke 21, we've witnessed them in the last few chapters. We've witnessed them, one, deny Jesus. They've attempted in Luke 20 alone to entrap Jesus in his own words. They've persecuted those who sought Jesus and sought his teaching. They've already, by Luke 21, started spreading false accusations about Jesus. They've imposed harsh religious sanctions on the people who try to follow Jesus. And most notably, John chapter 9, they have interrogated any who would dare to proclaim the glories of Jesus. In John chapter 9, this blind man is healed by Christ and he starts telling people, this man, Jesus, has done this and I'm praising God for it and the religious leaders drag him before them and begin interrogating, why are you saying these things, charging him not to. They've essentially placed themselves in opposition to God. And by the time we come into verse one of Luke 21, we find yet another grievous atrocity that they've committed because of their corrupted beliefs, mainly their corrupted religious system. We arrive here with a sense of familiarity, and yet I think I've come to the conclusion that this passage is teaching something that none of us are likely to, to have thought of before. In one regard, this passage is often looked at as an example of giving. That's, that's been its main point in teaching. It's an example of what it means to sacrifice everything to God. And the, the poor widow woman in verse 2 and 3 and 4 is heralded as this example to be emulated of a person who gives everything for the glory of God and, and trust in God. And that lesson may certainly exist. I think it does at least superficially but the reason for the existence of this text and its location, particularly in Luke's gospel, you remember last week we defined context has a lot to do with everything in this book. The reason it's here is much more ominous than just a lesson about giving or tithing. It's meant to highlight the exact corrupt practices of false religion, sandwiched is this passage between two passages that deal with condemnation and judgment over Israel and their religious leaders. We saw that that's mainly all of Luke 20, an indictment on the religious system. Luke 21 carries that theme, and yet wedged in there is this example of this poor widow. And the context, I think, forces us to see that these corrupted Religious leaders care nothing about what God cares about, and that is people. They care more about their rules. If you look back with me in chapter 20, verse 46 and 47, we looked at six hypocritical details that Christ lines out about these scribes um, 
in verse 46, he says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces. They love the best seats in the synagogues. They love the places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. Chapter 20 ends with this condemnation or this judgment. They will receive the greater condemnation. The key is the context, and the context is verse 47. These religious leaders devour, devour widows' houses. They, they take advantage of the vulnerable. They devastate those who are in need. And they don't care about people. They care about their rules. They care about the status quo. That church is opposite of what God thinks. John MacArthur summarized um, kind of the mentality of corrupted leaders from these verses by saying they have created a system that preys on the vulnerable to the point of total devastation. That's a good summary. False religion preys on the vulnerable to the point of total devastation. And that doesn't just take place in the time of Christ. That takes place even today. False religions prey on the vulnerable to the point of total devastation. And that incures the wrath and displeasure of God. In verse 47, the issue that Jesus takes up with them is how they treat the widows. They devour widows' houses. And we're not to imply from that just a, a structure, like a house that might come into our mind in the form of an image. Uh, we're to conclude livelihood. They devour the livelihood of widows. What enabled them to exist? What enabled them to live? In other words, they exploited the vulnerable for their own legalistic laws. That tells us that they lacked mercy, they lacked compassion, they lacked justice and love and kindness, and they lacked a caring heart for those who were less fortunate. All are characteristics and traits of God, even as He relates to us. If you flip back to the Old Testament minor prophet book, Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, most of you know this verse, it says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the desire of God for us, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with God, and that is not the mark of these religious leaders. And they had an, an opportunity in chapter 20, verses 1-4, through 4, to do justice, and to love kindness, and to emulate God. They didn't do that. Instead, they're marked by legalistic thinking that destroys lives instead of saves lives. And we know this is their thinking because this is what Christ has been warring against with them all throughout His ministry. I'd flip over now to Mark chapter 7. I want you to hear these words from Mark 7. Jesus is addressing this very mentality, this very thing that they're practicing in Luke 21, only a different time. And listen what he says to them in Mark 7, verse 9. To these religious leaders, Jesus said, You have a fine way 
of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. What a sobering statement. What a fearful statement. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your own tradition. You, you have a good, good practice of taking away the doctrines of God, the commands of God, the instructions of God, and instead replacing them with your preference-driven mentality and practices, your traditions. He goes on to say in verse 10, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. You erase the intentions and desires of God and, and the plan of God for the sake of your own man-made traditions. You know what strikes me as fright, frightful in regards to this? Is number one, how often Christ has to address this in his life and ministry. Over and over and over and over again, Jesus is forgiving the repentant sinner and engaging the corrupted religious leaders. And the repentant sinners repent often. The corrupted religious leaders seem to never learn their lesson. And he spends so much of his warring time in his earthly ministry fighting against that very thing. Corrupted religious leaders who have made a corrupted religious system that preys on the vulnerable to the point of total devastation by upholding legalistic rules and burdens instead of doing what God does, caring about the people, loving kindness, and taking care of justice. The second thing that strikes me about this is not only the, the continuing consistency that Christ has to keep engaging this, but the fact that there seems to be a whole lot of people who think they're serving God and they're actually found opposing God. That they think they've had a better interpretation on the things of God, better insight upon the things of God. They think they can improve upon the things of God. They think their traditions will help them achieve the things of God. And in the end, they're actually going against God himself. It says the same thing in Mark 7, but I like Matthew's version. In Matthew chapter 15, I'll just read over there. Jesus says this. He said it earlier in Mark 7, but I want to read it out of Matthew 15. Matthew 15, verse 1, The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. There again, they're concerned with what? The traditions of the elders. And what are those traditions? Rituals. Ritualistic washing. Why don't they wash before they eat? Jesus responds in verse 3, he says, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. The same thing we read in Mark 7. So, he says in verse 6, So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And then here again is an example of the disdain that God has for false corrupted religion. He says, you hypocrites. 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God has no place in his heart for those who profess to act on his behalf, but instead advance a legalistic, Un-God-ordained religion that is built upon human tradition and man-made preferences instead upon the character of God and the love of Christ for sinners. It's staggering to me how often Christ has to address this. It's staggering to me that people can think they walk with God and yet find themselves Opposing God himself. These are the people we find in verse 47 of Luke 20. Who are devouring widow's livelihood. And the example is Luke 21 verses 1 through 4. This is an example of them devouring a widow's livelihood. But the context isn't just Luke 20, 47. The context is also what happens after the passage. And that's verse 5 and 6. Look in Luke 21, 5 and 6. While some were speaking, some of them were speaking, the religious leaders, they were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. And Jesus said in verse 6, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another. That will not be thrown down. In other words. These religious leaders. Have just watched this widow. Give her last cent to the offering plate. And now they're looking around the temple. And what are they taking up with? Not the care of that widow. They're taking up with the splendor. And the beauty. And the glory of this temple structure. And Christ says. That is so typical of you. Don't you know that these things are temporary and trivial and they're going to pass away? Corrupted religion, ultimately, this might be the singular lesson of the day, ultimately misappropriates what God actually values. And they stand around and they glance at the splendor of what they've built in honor of God with all the precious stones and gold. Neglecting the people in the temple that God actually cares about. I would put it to you in the form of a question. Do you think God delights more in the gold of the temple than he does in the heart of the people within the temple? Well, certainly not. The gold of the temple was to serve one purpose, and that's a relatively small purpose in comparison to the redemption of the people within the temple. The gold of the temple was to serve as a symbol to give people a sense of awe and wonder and splendor as they come in before God. But these people had made it a priority instead of God himself. So now they're found valuing what God doesn't value and discarding what God does value. That's the kind of scene we pick up in Luke chapter 21 Verses 1 through 4. So let's look there before we go through this whole morning without reading it. Again, it's an example 
of a religious system that misappropriates value and therefore destroys the vulnerable in the name of God. Verse 1 of Luke 21, Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they, are, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. We're quick to make assumptions about this text, but it is important to point out there's a lot of details missing. And we're not told exactly what Jesus thinks about the scenario. We have to infer again from the context what Jesus thinks about the scenario. We begin in the um, treasury area of the temple. Christ has looked up. The, the verse puts us in that location. He's looked up. This is what he's seen. And in the treasury part of the temple, that's where they collected the offerings. And in that part, it's kind of this outside outer part. There would be these horn-like or trumpet-like structures with the big end at the bottom and the narrow end at the top. That's so you could dispense your coins in, but thieves couldn't get their hands in to uh, take from the, the box. And so there were all of these structures around because this is the place where you deposit your your offerings, and each one had a specific designation for a specific type of offering. And at this point in time in Jesus' life, he's sitting in the wealthiest place in all of the country. The temple had the most wealth in its treasury than anything else around it. And that's because it was the epicenter of Jewish religion, but also of Jewish life, even civil life. It was a place of currency, so it had all the finest flour and wine and grain and money that one could imagine. And it's in that scene and in that setting that we first encounter in verse 1, the first group of rich individuals putting their gifts into the offering box. We're not told anything about these rich people. We're not told how many rich people are there. And we're not told what exactly they're putting in or how much they're putting in. But it's evident that Jesus can look up and see them and know right off they're wealthy. Which probably tells us they're giving quite a bit uh, of money. Now that's not them flaunting. That's them doing what is common. You offered your offering in public. And everybody looked and everybody watched and everybody took notice. And these people are contributing in such a way that everybody would conclude those are the wealthy men of the city and they're giving a whole lot of money to the temple. And in everybody's eyes and mindset, we're prone to think this way too, they would have looked and said, that's the best gift given today. Look at the rich giving all this stuff to the temple. They must really love God. But that's not what Jesus sees. Again, he values things differently. Verse 2, his eyes don't focus on the rich putting their gifts in. His eyes focus on a poor widow woman. A man named James Edward in his commentary writes this about this woman. He says, in Israel, widows were not simply women whose husbands were deceased, but they were women who thereby were made vulnerable and made to seek their protection and comfort in God. Now that certainly would have extended to the place of God and the servants of God, right? The temple of God and the leaders of the religious system who were to act on God's behalf and care for the people. This woman has come to the only place that she can to find protection and comfort from God, and yet she's met with 
cold, calloused, hardened expectations, and she's expected to give in her poverty like everybody else. It's a harsh reality that these leaders seem to value her money over her. And I think it's magnified when we consider how much she's actually given. It's a very, very, very small amount of money. And in fact, Jesus says in verse 4, if we take it at face value, it's everything she had. And instead of them pausing and saying, let me care for you, instead of you giving all you have and being in more poverty, they still expect her to give. What she gives is two small copper coins. Your Bible might have a footnote, should have a footnote at the bottom describing those coins. If they're Jewish currency. It's the only time in the New Testament that Jewish currency instead of Roman currency is mentioned. It's known as a lepta. And there are varying uh, values placed on a Jewish lepta. Some people think, think it's as low as 128th of, of a value of a denarius, a day's wages. Others say it's 164th of a day's wages. Some have even tried to compare it to U.S. dollars, and it would be about an eighth of a penny of U.S. dollars. So if we put the two together, at most, she seems to have given about a sixteenth, or however you do math, what is it? Quarter of a U.S. cent. It's a very negligible amount of money. There's not a whole lot of value in it. In fact, we might even say it's not even a drop in the bucket. And yet, she's expected to give. Because after all, it's about keeping the rules right. Christ, in my opinion, does seem to commend her in verse 3. I think he's respecting her. Truly, I tell you, he says, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. The literal phrase is more than all of them together. It's evident to Christ, it's evident to the disciples that this woman is not just a widow, she's a poor widow. And it's evident that by her putting in two lepta in verse 4, she's put in all she had to live on. He says in verse 4, this is why he, his value system is different. They've contributed out of their abundance, but she has contributed out of her poverty. If we're taking it as a lesson on tithing, which I think is so secondary to the actual point of the text, but if we take it as a lesson on tithing, one individual pointed out, it seems that in God's value standard, it's not how much you give, but how much you keep for yourself, which might be true. These rich people may have given more in monetary value, but they kept more for themselves. This woman gave everything she had to honor God. If we take it at face value, and I think we should, then verse 4 is not something to celebrate, it's something to mourn. It's not something we rejoice in, it's something we find sorrow in. That here, in a place where she should be safe, and cared for, she's driven into more poverty. The woman didn't have much to start with. She had two lepta, again, a tiny amount. Now she has nothing. 
And where she was supposed to be cared for and provided for and protected, she's actually robbed. And one might say she's supposed to walk away with more faith and trust in God, and perhaps that's true, at least on the surface level. But the fact is, in reality, the obvious fact is, they've taken everything she has now, and she's now in more need than she ever was before. So if they were going to care for her, it requires even more effort now than it would have ever required before. As small as her amount is, it's all she had, and even that is taken away from her. I would pose it to you again in a question. Would God more delight in her two lepta or in them caring for her like they're commanded? This is again a system that cares more about rules than it does for people. And what brings the disdain of God is that Jesus cares more about people. Jesus cares for that widow. Jesus cares for her needs. He cares for her heart. He cares for her, her livelihood. He cares for her ability to live in this world. And He cares for her soul to be drawn to God in truth and honesty and sincerity. But this system doesn't seem to be caring about that. These religious leaders don't seem to be caring about that. And so He's going to go on to pronounce judgment on them and Luke 21 and condemnation on them and saying you guys just simply don't get it. You've built a system caught up on money and not people. And that is never the system of God. I wish I could say this is an isolated incident where we can learn a lesson from something that happened 2,000 years ago and move on. But that's not at all what is the case. This is a very prevalent issue and a very current lesson to be learned. I would fast forward a few years, the year 1517, and you'll find this exact scenario taking place in medieval Germany. You should know the date, 1517. It's the unofficial mark and beginning of the Protestant Reformation. In the year 1517, there's this gentleman commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church to go to Germany for the single purpose of selling indulgences. His name is Joanne Tetzel. And selling indulgences was nothing more than selling a slip of paper that said, if you buy this paper, you have purchased a loved one out of purgatory and into heaven. So out of punishment and into heaven with Christ. All you need to do is buy this indulgence. You know, even Roman Catholic historians look today and they say the Pope at the time, Leo X, was, in their own words, the most corrupt Catholic who's ever lived. That statement comes from a Catholic historian named Justo Gonzalez. And Pope Leo X commissioned Tetzel to go to Germany to go to all the villages that he could as quickly as he could, sell as many indulgences as he could for what are two hallmark staples of the Catholic Church right now, the Sistine Chapel and St. Peter's Basilica. And Tetzel was top tier at selling indulgences. He had his system set up. He had his speech set up. And he went from Germantown to Germantown, heaping loads and loads and loads of guilt upon the poor so that they might purchase their poor parents and grandparents and siblings out of purgatory and into heaven. And he took lepta after lepta after lepta. He coined the phrase that became most popular 
And the phrase is, a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Which means when you drop your money in the box, you've just saved somebody out of purgatory into heaven. And what Leo X didn't foresee and what Tetzel didn't foresee is Tetzel coming into a small German town named, named Wittenberg and encountering a German monk named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther's parishioners began to brag to him about purchasing these indulgences for themselves and their, and their loved ones. And Luther's intentions were to write to the Pope to inform him of what Tetzel was teaching so that the Pope could correct him. Because what Martin Luther realized and knew clearly from Scripture was that salvation is never in your works or a corrupted religious system. It's only in faith in Jesus Christ. And repentance doesn't involve money. And as a response to Joanne Tetzel, in 1517, October 31st, Martin wrote and nailed his 95 Thesis to the castle door of the Wittenberg Church. And if you read those 95 Thesis, what you come to find is quite clear. They primarily focus on what true biblical repentance is and how one can be saved. Martin Luther recognized that when you add anything to the gospel, even the selling and buying of indulgences, you are insulting the grace of God. That is a corrupt religious system and it is not the gospel. What's wrong with these people requiring this widow to give everything she had so that she might be in line with their rules? It is not the gospel. And the gospel is the heart of God. You want to know clearly what the heart of God is and how God feels about people and thinks about His creation? You look at the cross. You look at the Gospel. It's the clearest picture of the heart of God. And that, at the cross, the Gospel is not a place of taking advantage of others. It's of giving everything for those who can't give back. The Gospel is not a set of rules that you must keep in order to earn favor and blessing from God. The gospel is not what Tetzel was teaching and selling in his indulgences. The gospel is not requiring a poor, broke widow woman to give everything she had so that she might be in right standing with God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you can't do anything so Christ has done it for you. And, and here's the reality. That applies to us even to today, right? No amount of offering that you give, no amount of works that you do, no amount of remorse that you feel will earn you any standing before God. The only thing that earns you standing before God is Christ. It's not how sorry you are for your sin. It's not how resolved you are not to do it again next time. It's not how how much you want to make your life better. It's not even the de desires you have in your heart. It's Christ and Christ alone. And the reality is, we are all worse off than this poor widow woman. Spiritually speaking. She at least had something to put in the plate. We have nothing to offer God. We don't even have a lepta. We are the definition of destitute. 
We are the definition of spiritually poor. We are the definition of helpless. And the gospel is that Christ in that place of destitute and helplessness has met us and called us to himself. Jesus died for you when you had nothing to offer him. And he died not so that he could gain your lepta from your wallet. He died to make you righteous before God. We tend to read a passage like this and look at the poor widow woman and have pity on her. But really, we're the ones who need pity. Because we're the ones who are spiritually bankrupt. And no amount of your worldly treasures can you offer before God as, as a standing. God hates false religion because Christ hung on the cross and shed his own blood on the cross simply because you couldn't keep the rules. Because you couldn't be righteous on your own. And he wanted to be righteous for you. Praying upon a vulnerable widow woman. Selling of indulgences. Uh, adding to the gospel in any form or fashion. Is an atrocity to the gospel. Because our God. Is a God who is about loving and redeeming people. Through his grace. He's a God who cares to redeem sinners. And anything different to that is an insult to Christ on the cross. The question I would end today with is. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Or are you maybe not advancing this message but believing the message that you have to do something to make God happy there are many believers or professing believers that I've encountered over the years who profess faith in Jesus but when I begin to pry and ask them about their faith it usually hinges upon some kind of work that they've done and or are doing to feel good before God well I haven't sinned or committed this sin in X amount of time or I've repented over this sin X amount of times. Or I go to church every Sunday. That's practicing what these religious leaders levied against this widow woman. Thinking you have to do something to be in a right standing with God. It's a matter of faith and repentance. Have you turned from yourself and trusted in Jesus? I think of Paul's description of Abraham's faith in Romans chapter 4. It's one of my favorites. In that chapter, Paul describes Abraham's faith as being fully convinced that God is able to do what he had promised. And what does God promise for you and I? He promised it in Joel 2 for a future, and he's made it realized through Peter's sermon in Acts 2. And that promise is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In Joel 2 and Acts 2, the word for Lord is Yahweh. And what's so clear in Intriguing about Acts 2 is Peter applies it directly to Jesus. Anyone who calls upon the name of God in Jesus will be saved. And faith is being fully convinced that God is able and willing to keep that promise. Come to Christ in faith. And let us not perpetuate a false corrupted religious system that preys upon the vulnerable and has nothing to do with the real gospel. Let us be a people who proclaim the gospel and not our traditions. 
Let us be a people who point as many others to Christ as possible, telling them God has died to make you righteous before himself, to present you holy and blameless. Yes, you are guilty. Yes, you are part of a corrupted humanity. Yes, you have sin that's tainted the very core of who you are, but Christ died for such people as you and I. And you can be forgiven. You can be redeemed. You can be made righteous. Place your faith in Christ. And maybe that's you this morning. Let go of all of your efforts and be fully convinced that God is faithful and able to keep the promise of saving you if you come to Him. Father, Your Word can sometimes be heavy upon us. And that's good. I don't think, Father, that this is just a text on giving. I think you've talked about giving so clearly in other places. And in the context here, I think you're. I think you're expressing sorrow over. Religious leaders who devour widows houses. Who take advantage of the broken and the poor for their own gain and their own thinking and their own traditions. They've turned to another gospel, and I pray, God, you would protect us from doing that. Let us never proclaim another gospel, but your gospel, O oh God. We thank you that our salvation doesn't hinge upon how much we give or how many rules we follow. We frankly confess we can't follow them, Lord. So we are so thankful for Christ dying for us. I pray if there are any here this morning, Father, who think they've had faith but have only been trusting in their own repentance or their own efforts, they would come to trust in you today. And those of us who have trusted in you, who have been saved by your mercy and grace, I pray our hearts would well up with gratitude that you've saved us out of danger and into life. In Jesus' name.